Thanks, John. Um, hey, man, super excited to be with you guys tonight. Uh, as I've been thinking about uh, this message I have to share with you, I just wanted to remind us, um, and again, if you are, if you're visiting here and you're, and you're with us, the coolest thing about what happens every time we gather together. And I, I, just, I, just, I just know we have to remind ourselves of this because sometimes we just think, well, I, I'm just going to church. I'm just going to church. This is what I do. But God said, but yeah, but when you come to church, when you actually gather like this, he goes, I'm actually, I'm here. I am, I am present. That's amazing, you guys, that we have a chance today to actually engage our lives with the living God who loves you more than you could ever imagine, who wants to speak to you and encourage you in your hearts, and, and for us, too, just to have a chance to really love each other. So before I dive into this message, can we, let's just pray, and let's ask God to bless this time and to encourage our hearts and to strengthen our faith. God, we are so grateful for your presence. It's life. You have made it known to us that to know you to experience you is what we were created for. And that's why we're here, to remember you, to remember how good you are, to remember how worthy you are of us giving you our lives. Jesus, I just pray that tonight you might speak to each one of our hearts, open the eyes of our heart so that we can see you in a fresh and new way. I really do. God, just come, surprise us tonight with your presence. It's why we're here, because you're worth it. And we pray in your name. Amen. All right, so I have 20 nieces and nephews. 20. And most of them are already graduated from high school. They're grown men and, and women. And so every year, I mean, I, I, you can ask my wife, it, it feels like every year we keep getting announcements that somebody else is engaged. We got another one this year. And so our vacations are almost always going back to Michigan for another wedding because somebody else is getting married. Or we get birth announcements now because now that they're married, just kids are just popping up left and right. So let me introduce you to my latest nephew. This is my daughter, uh, my daughter. This is not my daughter's child, thank you, Jesus. Um, no, this is my niece, Madison. And this is her young boy, Seth. He totally has the wrong hat on. I don't know what's up with the Mets action, but that's Seth, and he was born in August. And this is the newest one right here. This is my nephew, Seth, and his... Oh, so I, I messed that up, didn't I? The first kid's name is Shay. I was jumping ahead. That's Shay. This is my nephew, Seth's son, Foster. And Foster was born just a month ago. He's only a month old. Not even. Uh, he'll be a month old in two days. So, and it's Christmas, you guys, right? Isn't it amazing? Like, isn't it amazing to think that that was like Jesus? That God, the creator of the universe, was willing to come and become a little baby just like that. And here's the cool thing. The celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The God sent out a birth announcement too. But the cool thing about his birth announcement is it was divine. God actually gave a divine birth announcement. And part of his divine nature is that God exists outside of time and space. And so he's not bound. He's not bound by time. And so he took this prerogative 
of being eternal in his nature, and he decided to do the birth announcement of his son hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. It was a divine, supernatural birth announcement. Now, there are two things today that I think are beautiful that this divine birth announcement does for us. The first one is when we think, how can we know today? How can we actually have confidence that the historical Jesus is actually the Son of God and that he's the Savior of the world and not just a good person, not just a good teacher? And this divine birth announcement, I think, helps strengthen that faith. It's a great evidence for the fact that Jesus was actually the Messiah, as we'll talk about. And then the other question is, how can we trust right now today that what God says he will do, he actually will do? How can we know today that he will be faithful to accomplish the things that he says he will do? And this prophetic move of God to say, I'm going to do something hundreds of years before it actually takes place, and then that it takes place, helps us to know that he is faithful. And what he says he will do, he indeed will do. And so the announcement that came all through the Old Testament was that the Messiah was going to be born. In fact, what's interesting, if we call him what? We call him Jesus. What's his last name? Christ. Did you guys know it's not, it's actually not his last name, by the way. Um, so, uh, but this is probably what you didn't know, is Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So really, every time we say Jesus Christ, what we're saying is Jesus the Messiah. And so the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would come and that this baby would be born, a baby would be born, but that he would become a king that would set his people free from oppression but that he would reign as a king over all nations forever. So before I go in to sharing these amazing prophecies of God's fulfillment of Jesus, I I gave this message on earlier this week and our team said, I think that people actually need to understand who the Messiah is before we talk about the fulfillment of that. So we're gonna watch a short video here. It's by the Bible Project. You know, how many of you have heard of the Bible Project? Yeah, it's, it's a fan. Man, if you haven't, check it out. They do great work. This is a full understanding the, the, from the very beginning of time to the end and the culmination of history of the importance of the Messiah. And I think after you watch this, you're going to see why it's even more fantastic and awe-inspiring that God would announce his birth hundreds of years before it took place. Okay, so let's watch this. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're they're in in the Garden Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake, and it starts telling a different story. It says, tree, it's not going to kill In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, 
This thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends and the snake crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available 
to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. All right. So now you know why it would be so important for God to know, to let us know, and to assure us that when the Messiah came, when this king came, who was going to defeat evil and reign forever, that we would know it was him. And so some people would say there's over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament that prophesy about Jesus coming. On a conservative level, so, so some people go, I don't know about all those, but on a conservative level, there's 300, okay? There's 300. So before I say this, you guys, this is fascinating that Jesus would actually fulfill these prophecies. So listen to this. There was a professor, he was named Peter Stoner, and he worked with 600 students to figure out what the probability would be of just eight just eight, there's 300. <laughs> if Jesus, if, if, if eight prophecies were actually fulfilled in one person, if just eight of them were fulfilled in one person, you know what the probability was? It's one in 100 quadrillion. Does anybody even know what a quadrillion is? It's one with 17 zeros after it. It is a thousand million millions. That's the probability of one person fulfilling just eight of these, and Jesus fulfilled 300 of them. Lee Strobel, maybe some of you have heard that name before. Lee was an atheist, and he was super concerned because his wife was beginning to have faith in Christ, and so he decided he was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and so he decided he's going to use his investigative skills to go after and show that Christianity wasn't true. Long story short, the more he dove in, the more he realized, wow, I cannot disprove this, and he ended up putting his faith in Jesus Christ. And so then, and this is what Lee wrote about this issue of fulfilled prophecies. He goes, I imagined the entire world being covered with white tile that was one and a half inches square. Okay? Every bit of dry land on the planet with the bottom of just one tile being painted red. And then I pictured a person being allowed to wander for a lifetime around all seven continents. He would be permitted to bend down only one time and pick up a piece of tile. What are the odds it would be the one tile whose reverse side was painted red? The odds would be the same as just eight of the Old Testament prophecies coming true in any one person throughout history. The whole earth covered with one and a half inch tiles. And you get one shot to turn it over. That's the probability of fulfilling these prophecies. So in light of that amazing thing, I'm going to share it with you just three. <laughs> okay, The lineage of Christ, <clears throat> the place of Christ, and the time of Christ. Let's look at the lineage. It was in the video. 
In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, some 1,500 years before, 1500 years before Christ was born, this is Jacob prophesying about his son Judah. He says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, scepter, the rule, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. So again, every Jewish person knew this one thing about this coming king. He was going to come from the line of Judah. And they knew that. And then, as we watched in the video with King David, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 13, the Lord is talking to David and he says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. This is one of the main things about this Messiah, this king. His reign will be forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure, David, forever before me. And your throne will be established forever. So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, I, I, I meet with a, couple, uh, with a few guys and we decided to do Matthew. And the first thing you get to in Matthew is just this genealogy, right? It's very spiritual, you know, to read name after name after name after name. Listen to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Hundreds, thousands of years, watch, boom, 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 Jesus, the Messiah. Luke chapter 1, verse 31 through 33, when Gabriel, the angel, comes to tell Mary she's going to give birth to Jesus, he says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob, which is Jacob is Israel, and Jacob's son is Judah. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Amazing prophecies fulfilled by Jesus Christ through hundreds of years. Now here's another fascinating thing about Judah is when the 12 tribes came into the promised land, each one of them was given a piece of land. And so there is the tribe of Judah, there is the land of Judah. And so the prophecy of Jesus as the Messiah moves from lineage to geography. And now we're going to talk about the place. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2 through 5, this is 700 years before Jesus is born. It says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. His greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. So if you know the story, the Christmas story at all, is when, the, when Jesus was born, the Magi, right? The three wise men, as we call them, the Magi came. And when they came, they asked, where is this son, the king of the Jews, who has been born? Well, this freaked Herod out, right? As the king, he's like, wait, whoa, 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 I'm the king. 
And so when he freaked out with the Magi's question, where is the one who's been born? He asked, he brought in the the Jewish chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he said, where is the Messiah to be born? This was the prophecy that they read back to him. The Messiah, the king of the Jews, will be born in Bethlehem, which is in Judah. In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that had taken place while Carinus was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, (laughs) which was prophesied 700 years before, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Susie was telling me about a friend of ours who was studying this this whole passage, and they said most all Jewish people knew that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. And Mary is already pregnant, right, with Jesus. <laughs> and she just said, can you imagine what must have happened when all of a sudden Caesar Augustus declared the decree and said, you have to go back to your hometown? She's like, we have to go to Bethlehem? <laughs> what that must have done to them? It's like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. <laughs> the fulfillment of these prophecies. Well, the place of the Messiah continues in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. It says, in the past, God had humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, God's going to honor Galilee of the nations. He later goes on, and this is the classic Christmas passage, right? For to us a child is born. Here's the prophecy. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be be no end. He will reign on David's throne with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And so in Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, so here's here's what happened, right? So so, uh, King Herod, the, the Magi, trick him and stuff, and they figure out that they leave, and so Herod freaks out, and he says, okay, There can be nobody to grow up as the king, so he commands that all boys, two and younger, are killed. And so the angel comes to Joseph, warns him. He and Mary flee immediately to Egypt. And they live in Egypt. You guys think about this. Just remember this. Jesus, our Savior, is a refugee. He is a refugee. And then in Matthew chapter 2, verse 19, it says this. After Herod died... An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and he said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life for dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Just unbelievable. 
So we have this amazing fulfillment of the prophecy of the lineage of Jesus. We have the fulfillment of the place, the geography of Jesus. And now we have the time that the Bible would actually tell us the time that the Messiah was actually going to be born so that they, we could know. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, 430 years before the birth of Christ, this prophet says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So for those of you who've, who've grown up and kind of understand the Bible, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before you. Who, who's that? Who's that? Yeah, we got John the Baptist, right? And so my messenger is John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, it says about John, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. And what was so interesting is when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, look, behold, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then it says he is the messenger of the covenant. Well, that's Jesus, you guys. Jesus is the messenger of a new covenant, he said. At the end of his life, when he was with his, his apostles, doing what we call the Lord's Supper, presenting communion, in, ver, in Luke 20, verse 22, it says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. 430 years before. But here's the timing piece. It said that suddenly the Lord you are seeking, he will come to his temple. And that means the Lord, the Messiah, actually had to come to the temple that God ordained to be built, which was in Jerusalem. And we all know this, in, in AD 70, the Roman general Titus completely destroyed the temple. Anybody else been to Israel? Okay, just yep, one, one of us. Uh, if you go to Israel, and you guys are probably saying that the temple is demolished. It has not been rebuilt since 70 AD. But if the Messiah was going to have to come to his temple, then he would have had to have come before 70 AD. So that's one of the timings that we know about the person of Christ. And now I want to share with you the last portion of Scripture on this timing is from Daniel chapter 9. And I'm going to be honest with you, this is the most, uh, this is the most in, in depth as you read. I, I studied so many people about this. There's some controversy on this because prophetic words are many times not super clear, right? They're, they're, they speak in, in words that are hard to understand. And so if you actually go to the internet and you look da up Daniel 9 and the prophecies of, of Christ's birth, you are going to find different opinions on this. And so, but as I studied it, Almost every person that I know as a scholar that I trust, who, who really believes that Jesus actually is the Son of God, who, who, rose, who came to, as the Savior of the world, the majority of them would say the best interpretation of this scripture is what I'm going to share with you guys today. Okay, So you will find some other nuances within this because it's prophetic language, but I want to share with you what the majority of people who are scholars in the, in the evangelical Christian world would say. All right? So here we go. Here's what's happening. Daniel, as a Jewish man, is in exile with all the Israelites in Babylon. And the prophet Jeremiah said that you will be in Babylon for 70 years. 
And so this is getting near the end of those 70 years. And so Daniel's this amazing man of God. So he's praying, fasting and praying and reaching out to God and crying out to God on behalf of the Israelites. And he wants to see Jerusalem be restored because <laughs> this is their plan. This was the promised land and we're supposed to be there. So he's calling out to God. And in chapter nine, it says this. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. Hey, when else do we hear about Gabriel? The next time we hear Gabriel's name, he is the same one who comes as the messenger to Mary to tell her about the birth of the Messiah. And Gabriel is the one who comes to Daniel. And here's what he says. He instructed me and he said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are very precious to God. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And here's what he tells him. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, these sevens are, are periods of times, and this is where almost every scholar would say these sevens are seven-year periods. Okay, so if you have a seven is seven years, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually bring up a chart here in just a minute to, to, to help make this clear, but I just wanted to let you know what sevens are. So he says, 77s are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. But actually, if you look at the Hebrew, it only says to anoint the most holy. In every version, when you look, it's, they've added a word. That the English language sometimes adds place, but every version will also say it could be one. It could be the holy one. And then verse 25. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, by the way, Messiah means the anointed one. That's what it is. Christ means the anointed one. So right here, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So seven sevens is seven times seven, that's 49. So there'll be 49 years. And there'll be 62 times seven, which is 434 years. So he's got, see how specific he's getting here? And then he says, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. And then the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. This is fascinating. Real quick overview, what's he saying here? The starting point 
right? The angel says the starting point is going to be the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. There will be seven plus 62 sevens. That's 483 years. And then the Messiah is going to come. And he will be killed and be abandoned and have nothing. And then a ruler will arise to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Isn't that amazing? This is amazing. <laughs> Hundreds of years before this specific. So my buddy John Burke, uh, who I got a lot of this from, John was an actual atheist himself and didn't believe in, in the faith of Christ. It was the study of these prophecies that he couldn't deny. It was these prophecies where when people struggle with, with the reality or the trustworthiness of Scripture, where you just go, how could stuff be written hundreds of years ago? And we know they were written before that because we actually have pieces, right? We have the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have the Septuagint, which is, was the Hebrew Scriptures translated into the Greek language. We have these, those were like 230 years before Jesus was born. And John was like, how can this happen? And here's what John said. He goes, so even if you think of all the dates that I'm gonna, going to show you, and I'm going to put up a chart here real quick, if you think they're bogus, you still need to be searching for a Messiah who claimed to be God, who was born a child in Bethlehem, who lived in Galilee, and who came to his temple in Jerusalem before it was leveled in 70 AD. That's who you have to look for. Now, so Mariah, come on up here and bring this uh, deal. So I'm going to try to just, uh, these numbers, to make this as, as clear as I can for you. Thank you. All right. So in Ezra chapter 7, verse 7, it says that Ezra came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Okay. Are, are some, some of you, are, my guess would be right now, some of you are going, what in the world are we talking about? Like, why, why are we diving into all this, like, this, this biblical math, you know? And it may seem kind of confusing. And the rest of and some of you are wired here this way, and you're like, okay, well, I'm gonna, and you're going to follow every little thing and make sure that I got it right, okay? So, so let me just show you. In Ezra chapter 7, it says that Ezra came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And here's what we know. And this is not biblical. This is actually historical Outside of biblical context, we know that Artaxerxes began his reign in 465 BC. So seven years after that is when the decree went out to rebuild Jerusalem. Remember what Gabriel, that's what Gabriel said. So what you have to do is you have to start seven years later from Artaxerxes' reign in 458 BC is when the decree went out. And then what did he say? There will be seven and 62 seven years. That's 483 years. So you have to take 458 BC, you subtract 483 years, and it ends up being AD 26, which would be right about the time that Jesus Christ was being baptized to begin his ministry as the Messiah. Okay, come on. That's right. I mean, that's, that's crazy. That's crazy. And then AD 70 is when the temple was destroyed. So the Messiah had to come before that period of time. God wanted us to know that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the king who's going to come and set things straight and reign for 
forever. He is the one who's going to overthrow evil and restore life. He is the Savior of the world. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Do not miss his birth. I'm going to give you 300 and eight of them would freak you out. He is who God said he is. And what God said he would do, he indeed did. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit to be the Savior of the world, will come from the tribe of Judah through the lineage of David, be born in Bethlehem, come from Nazareth in Galilee in AD 26, and he will enter his temple before it is destroyed in 70 AD, and with him he will bring the new covenant of a new promise from God to have a relationship with him forever. So I started this day, this message, by saying there's two things that I think are beautiful with this. The fulfillment of prophecy can help solidify our faith that Jesus is the Son of God. And secondly, fulfillment of prophecy will help us also to know that what God says will happen, will happen. So, for me personally, my faith is strengthened in who he is. And secondly, so is my faith in what he has done and what he will do. Can I, so I'm just going to share with you two kind of, because this is an interesting message, right? Because this isn't one, all right, now this is what God asked you to do, right? This isn't like a major like obedience message. But how do we respond in light of the awe and the amazement of the fulfillment of this prophecy? Let me give you two. Here's the first one. If God knew that all of these things were going to happen with Jesus, if he knew all these details about him so that he could say, this is exactly what's going to happen, you know what's crazy? He knows everything about you, too. He knows everything about you. In Jeremiah 29, 11, which we all love, God tells the Israelites, he says, listen, I know the plans that I have for you. Not to harm you, but to give you hope and a future. And then we can go to David in Psalm 139 when David said this, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You guys, if God is eternal, then he can see everything. And he knows exactly why you're here on this planet. The same reason Jesus came to this planet to be the savior of the world. And he knew that. He knows why you're here and nobody else does. And he says, your days are written in my book and they are ordained to be. And then he says, and, and I love Paul in Philippians 2, or Philippians chapter 1. He says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you for saying amen. <laughs> you guys, that is good news. Anybody else freaking out about your future? Anybody, anybody else wondering if God knows what he's doing and if he's going to take care of you? 
Come on, man. I, even for us as a church, as K2, as we have had to take this twist and turn and now meet on Saturday night, today nights in this building and we can all go, God, what are you doing? And what do you want to do? We went all fret and God's up there going, I know exactly what I'm doing. I knew this way before you guys ever even came out to plant K2. And I'm not done. I'm not done. I know the plans I have for you. And he knows what it is for you, and he knows what it is for us. And that fulfillment of prophecy, you guys, can help us to know that we have a good God who's almighty, and nobody can stop him. Nobody can stop him from doing what he says he's going to do. That's super cool. And here's the other thing. Man, does he love you. Man, does he love you. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus Christ into this world Christmas so that anyone who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Let me take you back to verse 24 in Daniel. He said this, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to do what? Look at this. To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, and to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up the vision and the prophecy, to say it is accomplished and to anoint the most holy one. So what can I know? That Jesus came to fulfill that right there. That his death, his sacrifice, put an end to sin, forgave it completely, and has given me everlasting righteousness. And that's so cool? In Hebrews chapter 10, Look at what it says. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. What's he saying? All that Old Testament prophecy, it was written about me. I have come to do your will, my God. And then in verse 10, it says, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And verse 14 By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Gabriel told Daniel, the Messiah is coming, to put an end to sin, to atone for all wickedness, to forgive all of us and to cover us and to give us eternal forever righteousness. You guys, what does that mean? That means what Jesus says, what God says he will do, he's going to do. And that means he has forgiven us, he has cleansed us, and when these days are done, we know we're going to be with him forever. Merry Christmas, y'all. Merry Christmas. This is the most amazing news in all the world. So band, come on up as we get ready to end our time in worship here. In 1 Peter chapter 1, this is what Peter said in light of all of this amazing stuff. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah, from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, never perish, never spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. When I was going through all these prophecies, the one thing that stuck out to me over and over again is how when this king comes, when the Messiah comes, he will reign how long? Forever. 
forever. So you and I get to live forever. And that's why we say all glory, all glory to Christ the Messiah, Christ the King, Christ the everlasting ruler, Christ our Savior, Christ the Son of God, all glory to you because you are reigning in us and you're taking us there forever. He is your Messiah. So let's stand, you guys. Let's stand and let's worship and let's sing and let's praise the one who is absolutely worthy of all of our lives. Let's do it.